I'm Duncan Rayburn, and sorry that it's taken me a bit long to get to this episode. I've had a few fairly rough weeks, and I've needed to prioritize a few things ahead of actually sitting down and preparing and recording this podcast. So thank you very much for being patient with me. Here we are at last, at episode 6 in our series on the book of Exodus. I ended the previous episode by mentioning the idea that perhaps central to the way we might understand slavery in the book of Exodus and perhaps in life in general, including our various forms of enslavement to systems and ideologies, etc., is by noticing Moses' struggle to articulate himself. What goes into exile is not just a group of people, but language itself. Although I'm I'm going to cover quite a bit in this episode. The general trend of what I uncover in this episode is the fact that before freedom can be claimed, we need to be able to reclaim our words. The basic idea is this. If we name our world, we can begin to find meaning in it. We pick up this little chapter in our exploration of Exodus, still listening in on Moses' conversation with God. This is not a conversation like any other, of course. Moses speaks with the divine presence almost casually. He is, in a way, naked before God. There's really no pretense. He admits his weakness. He utters every doubt that plagues his consciousness. He tries in vain to worm his way out of what promises to be a rather hellish ride. And God, at every turn, reveals himself to be no respecter of persons, as it were, although he remains a lover of persons. Moses is his instrument, whether Moses likes it or not. And this may seem to us to be a horrible violation of Moses' freedom. We like our autonomy, after all, no matter how illusory it may seem at times. The truth of this, however, is that this divinity knows what is best for Moses, which it is to say that he knows what will bring Moses a freedom that is greater than the one he imagines for himself. God is no respecter of persons as they currently are, because he intends for said persons to be better than they currently are. That's fair, I think, because love always carries demands. It is unconditional only in the sense that it is persistent despite everything that happens. Love is conditional in the sense that it places expectations on us, as everyone in a decent relationship will know. When Moses explains to God that he is not a man of eloquence, God effectively tells Moses that this really isn't an issue. After all, God explains, the origin of speech and sight is not in Moses, but in the transcendent order of absolute being. God says that he's going to teach Moses what to say. And then Moses takes what the psychoanalysts call resistance a step further and simply says to God, Please pick someone else for this job. You've got the wrong guy. Then God gets mad. But instead of smiting Moses with more wonders, he simply says, Look, if you're not going to be persuaded, your brother Aaron is pretty extroverted. He can go along with you and say the words that you should be saying. There's a general principle here which can be stated quite simply as follows. If something needs to be said... It will be said at one time or another, and by one means or another. You can hide the truth under a basket for a short while, but at some point someone is going to start asking questions about the origin of all that glowing light. The truth will have its day. I have to admit, though, that I, in a way, deeply respect the reluctance of Moses. In fact, I think it's something we can learn from, in a way. The danger of having our very own 
uh, private media engines these days is that it becomes far too easy for some people to speak up even when they don't have anything but darkness and violence and scapegoating to share with the world. Social media outlets encourage impulsivity and the first impulse of an awful lot of people as far as I can tell is not to spread sunshine and wonder in the world. So sometimes it's good for us in a way to wait until our very own versions of Aaron show up to help us get our words right. We can learn from certain people how to speak, how to say the right thing in the right way. We all live at least partly in the tension between speaking and silence and it's difficult to know when to choose to side with speaking or to side with silence. Moses gets a pretty amazing sign that it really is, despite what he thinks, the time to speak the truth. But when he refuses to take the opportunity up directly, he at least has the opportunity to stand alongside his brother as that truth is proclaimed. I guess if you're going to keep silent, the very least you can do is support those who are courageous enough to speak out. As you can expect, the result of Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush is that his life is turned upside down. He had, at this point in the story, achieved some kind of stability. He had a family, a place to live, a livelihood, you know, things to keep him busy with. And then, because of a chat with God, he had to uproot everyone. It's not often noticed, but when Moses leaves Midian with his family, he commits, unbeknownst to him, to remaining homeless for the rest of his life. He will die before entering the promised land with his people, and it will be absolute hell for him quite a lot of the time. This, it turns out, is the role of the prophet, to be perpetually unsettled, homeless, wandering, searching, while doing everything to actually guide the people who need guiding towards a goal that is not yet clear. One of the weirder moments in the Bible actually takes place soon after Moses heads back to Egypt. As we learn in Exodus 4 verse 24, God tries to kill Moses, although, as I'll get to, uh, this isn't nearly as it appears. As the usual story goes, or seems to go, Moses' wife Zipporah saves his life by taking a sharp stone cutting off the foreskin of her son and casting it at Moses' feet. And as she does this, she says these words, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. <laughs> Which is very weird. Because of these words, apparently, and because of the circumcision, God stops trying to kill Moses. Which is lovely. It's passages like these, so weird and seemingly barbaric, that would make any modern reader cringe. But this particular passage in the Exodus story is hugely contested, both in its translation and in its interpretation. For one thing, it's not clear that this is really God who is out to kill Moses. Some texts, some ancient texts, suggest that it's in fact Satan. And also, it's not clear that Moses is the one doomed for death. Uh, but these are really heavy scholarly questions, and they aren't really my concern here. It's helpful to keep a few things in mind. First off, Whenever we read about what God did or did not do in the Bible, we are reading the language of metaphor or perhaps even allegory. So the best shot we have at getting anywhere is to actually look at the text imaginatively. By analogy, I can't know, for instance, what the author was thinking when he wrote that particular sentence down, but I can know what he said. So when people ask, 
Why did God do this or that thing? They are inevitably asking the wrong question. A better question would be, why would a writer think that God did this or that thing? Or perhaps, what is the meaning of this or that thing within the context of the story and maybe of scripture in general? In this particular passage, the question is, what is the story within the story trying to convey? Then keep in mind along these lines, archetypal stories like this offer a kind of shorthand for truths that go way deeper than the obvious, as is most evident when you read the commentaries of rabbis and patristics. The most common and obvious interpretation centers around circumcision as a covenant issue. Circumcision was a ritual act borrowed from Egypt by the Hebrew people, and it suggests the idea, whether acceptable to moderns or not, of rebirth after birth. The first birth is into the world, the second is into the tribe, in a way. In fact, circumcision is still used today by some people groups as an initiation rite, a rite of passage from boyhood into the fullest responsibility that is owed by a man to his people. Typologically, circumcision prefigures baptism. It dates back, as the biblical narrative has it, to Abraham and his firstborn son Ishmael and his secondborn Isaac. It's about allegiance firstly to God and secondly to the children of Abraham, the people of God. It's an, an identity issue in the sense that people as a part of the covenant see themselves as part of a much bigger story. And the fact that Moses has not bothered to circumcise his son can therefore be read as a sign that he hasn't fully aligned himself with the purposes of God. Moses has failed to commit even though he has indicated some willingness to go along with God's harebrained scheme, he is still at this point in the story umming and eyeing about whether or not he should commit to the whole God getting Israel the hell out of Egypt thing. And this is itself a kind of suicide. It's to enact the path of death, not life, because it is about working against the calling that has been placed on his life. So, just at a symbolic level, we have God moving against Moses. The real issue is actually not God's like desire to kill Moses, but rather Moses' desire to actually take action in the way that is required of him. A parallel story to this can be found in the mythical tale of Jonah. Jonah received a call to go to Nineveh, which amounts to him taking responsibility for a part of the world that has as far as he is concerned, nothing to do with him. Jonah decides that he doesn't care much for this call, and he ends up running away. And then, you know, as, <laughs> as happens in so many stories, he ends up being swallowed by a large fish, which is a very strong symbol here of the possibility of entering into the realm of the dead, you know, following the path of de death instead of, of life. In fact, when you pay attention to Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish, you'll notice that it is really the prayer of a dead man. And that's why Jesus talks about giving people a sign of Jonah. He's really referring to resurrection or breaking away from the path of death or from the belly of the beast. Another thing to notice is that circumcision is not just a sign of covenant, but a sign of sacrifice. I mentioned the symbol of Moses taking off his sandals at the burning bush as a sign of sacrifice. Well, that act forms an odd symbolic parallel to the act of circumcision. When you want to make the right decision, chances are excellent that it's going to involve you giving something up, and that's going to be 
difficult, even painful. And uh, if you're thinking about this imaginatively, that's a little bit funny. I think that this forms a kind of parallel to Jesus talking about ripping your eye out rather than letting it cause you to sin. The point is that it's better to, you know, deal with smaller losses than to lose everything. St. Augustine offers a really interesting reading here too. He says that Christ is the stony blade that hacks off the flesh of the foreskin, which re represents the body of sin. And what's clear from this, if nothing else, is that the ancients were much less squeamish about talking about these things than we are. <laughs> and what I, I think is that, you know, the originality of these interpretations totally kicks modern hermeneutics in the balls. Another way of reading the story of Zipporah and Moses, which is offered by church fathers like Ephraim the Syrian and St. Augustine, is to see Zipporah as the culprit. She was the one who had not allowed for the circumcision of her son. Hence, Moses has to be punished because he hadn't gotten his house in order. And again, this seems pretty harsh, but the point, at least partly, is that a household with mixed allegiances is going to be harmful to those within it. When your house is working well, you're in a much better position to step out and make a difference in the world. At the most abstract level, though, the story of Zipporah and Moses and the circumcision of their son is about haste or timing when it comes to doing the right thing. Some things in life take time to come to fruition, but other things need to happen right now. Zipporah needs to act quickly because death is at the door. Well, the same is true for Moses and for all of us. Some things can be put off, but others are urgent and need urgent attention. Sometimes timing really is everything. This is one of the reasons why I appreciate the Greeks distinguishing between chronos time and kairos time. Chronos is about time as kind of mere succession. Kairos is about things happening at the right or the opportune time. At least, that's one of the things Moses' story about, acting and doing the right thing at the right time before it's too late. The last idea here is, is that circumcision uh, represents speaking in the right way. Moses later on in the story refers to himself as a man with uncircumcised lips, which is a really weird image. But the point of it is that Moses has to learn to speak in a way that is good for his people, that is in keeping with their being. So, Moses, having been rescued from death just in time, goes out and meets Aaron. And Aaron and Moses go out together as kind of reconciled Cains and Abels, and they tell Israel the plan. And completely contrary to Moses' original expectations, the people of Israel actually believe all of it. They believe that God has heard their cry, that he has taken notice of their oppression, and that he really has spoken to Moses. It's a really profound thing to think about when the speaker says something that he knows to be true, and people actually accept it as truth. The Hebrews bow their heads and worship Yahweh. All of this reveals how congruent God's prediction is with what actually ends up happening. Of course, God is, in a sense, cheating. He knows the whole story before it has been told. But for me, the message of this is that the truth itself is consistent. Goodness is consistent. One of the best tools for discerning what things in life aren't working is to look for inconsistency, to look for how your intention doesn't fit with the outcome, for instance, or 
to look for what isn't in alignment between thought and action, between what is meant and what is said. The Ignatians teach that when reason and sentiment don't line up, you know you're going to be in trouble in terms of your decision-making. The primary tool for discernment, then, is, is when you feel a deep, rich, unquestionable peace. And that peace is impossible when reason and sentiment aren't consistent with each other. Speaking of consistency, it's probably a good moment to return to one of God's predictions when he informs Moses of his mission. God explains that he will harden Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh will not let his people go. And this seems like a very odd thing to say. Why would God command Moses to ask for something and then ensure that what he asks for doesn't happen? It's one thing when God opposes people, you know, like he opposes Moses' will in a way, but at first glance it would seem that he is in fact opposing himself. First glances, though, are hardly ever enough. I think that this strange prediction is placed in the text as a kind of parable which communicates the idea that what seems is not always what is. When Moses and Aaron are on the same side and Israel is on their side and everyone is on God's side except the Egyptians, the next logical step has to take place. And it does take place. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, who is the chief symbol in the story of all that is suboptimal and which masquerades as the optimal, and they ask him, or maybe tell him, to let Israel go. And they do this by claiming not that this is their will, but that this is God's will, which is a really fascinating thing to think about. They adopt the posture of messengers, not the posture of rivals to Pharaoh. And Moses, because of his conversation with Yahweh earlier in the story, knows that the request they're putting forward to Pharaoh is really an, a polite way of giving Pharaoh the opportunity to exercise his free will. Yes, God has said that he would harden Pharaoh's heart, but the text of the story tells us that this isn't what happens first. Pharaoh, of his very own free will, chooses to deny the request. In fact, a close reading reveals that he is given quite a few opportunities to do as he is asked, to comply willingly, particularly because it will help to prevent Egypt from being smited by some serious wonders, but he refuses out of his own free will. He does not care to do as God asks because, or so he claims, he doesn't know who God is. He doesn't realize that this God is the reality that he has traded in for an illusion. He has substituted a, a transcendent order of being for an imminent one. The result of this is that Pharaoh's whole reality has become framed in terms of what is expedient or convenient, or I guess what's expected, in terms that is of what confirms his imminent power. This is why after refusing to do what has been asked of him, he clamps down on the Hebrew people and he demands that they work even harder than ever before. The Hebrews respond to this quite fairly and appropriately, I think. They start to ask God why he has handed them such a terrible deal. This is a really profoundly insightful thing to put into a story because it matches the experience that so many of us have. When you do the right thing, the, the thing that you know in your heart and head and like after great thought and, and contemplation, you've figured out that's the right way to go. It's quite natural to expect that you will be met with 
a kind of immediate reward. The universe will conspire to help you, as you know, Paulo Coelho says in The Alchemist. Um, I'm, I'm using that ironically because I think um, Paulo Coelho is a uh, fatalist. But what happens instead is that you're, f you're faced with greater calamity when you do the right thing. What is that about? I've had a few experiences recently like this uh, where I've sought to say and do what is right and true only to be met with a lot of resistance. And the consequence of this has, has been some psychological distress. What I've learned from this, in which I think the Exodus story echoes, is that the payoff comes later than expected almost always. We tell lies to be believed now. We tell the truth to be believed later. I think this distinction is vital. God stands for consistency, for the order of being, but the human experience, predominantly in the order of becoming, cannot perceive this consistency, this loyalty of transcendent being. At least, we cannot perceive this very easily. And so, of course, it's natural that Moses and his people have come to doubt the point of all of this. There's a Zen parable that comes to mind about a farmer who lived in China. He wasn't wealthy, so he made use of a very old horse to plow his field instead of using a tractor. Then one day the old horse dropped dead, and everyone in the village remarked how terrible this was that such a thing could happen. The farmer responded by saying, We'll see. As it turns out, someone in the village had previously noticed the aging horse and had already managed to save some money to get the farmer a new horse as a gift. This got people in the village talking about how lucky the farmer was. We'll see, he said. A short while later, the new horse jumped over the fence and ran away. The villagers said, oh, the poor farmer, this is terrible. But the farmer's response again was, we'll see. Well, the horse came back and everyone was delighted. Then, one day, the farmer's son was out riding on the horse and he fell off and broke his leg. Oh, that is so terrible, said the villagers. We'll see, said the farmer. A group of army people came to look for new recruits and they saw the boy's injury and they decided not to recruit him. Oh, wow, what a lucky man, said everyone. We'll see, said the farmer. As a Zen parable, this might be read as a message about retaining a detached stance against the world, but it can also be read as a reminder that the immediate judgment on a thing may not be the right one. As far as I can tell, the virtue of hope is particularly adept at helping us to say, we'll see. What we do see right now is a fleeting glimpse, like the single frame in a 24 frames per second projection of a film on the silver screen. What emerges, however, if we're paying attention, is an image beneath what is fleeting, a story behind a story. And it turns out that this is the story we're really looking for. God responds to Moses' questions and his complaints by reminding him of what he will do. In a sense, he's telling Moses to wait and see. Of course, what we end up seeing depends very much on how we're actually looking at the world. If you expect to see the deficiencies in being, you'll end up regarding every glass as half full. If you expect to see only the plenitude of being, you might even think that there isn't such a thing as a glass half empty. Uh, the discipline of perceiving the world accurately is the discipline of checking the lenses through which we're viewing things. And in fact, this is 
what the Exodus story communicates, especially in terms of what God ends up doing, what happens next in the story is a remarkable display of miracles and wonders. And, and my aim in the next episode is to look at these in a way that hopefully is fresh and interesting and illuminating. I hope that after the next episode we will not look at the plagues in the same way again. So I hope you do join me for that. Thank you very much for listening in. Um, I'll be back soon with some more on the book of Exodus. Cheers everyone. Take care.